One of the things that almost everyone does almost every day is eat. Unless you lack the ability, and I'm, I know that there are people who cannot eat today, um, Unless we lack the ability or we choose to abstain from food, everybody eats. What we eat, how we eat, with whom we eat, all of these variables change depending on who you are and where you live and what your day looks like and what you have access to and what you like and what you don't like. Sometimes my meals are basic sustenance, like getting a quick bowl of yogurt and granola while I'm trying to get two kids you know, out the door or a breakfast bar on the way to an appointment somewhere. It just does the job, right? Other times there are meals I enjoy with people. The food is important, but the company is more than caloric intake. It's about relationship, sharing lunch with someone, or dinner with our family, or sharing food and conversation around a table after worship in one of these round tables in the other room. That Those are better to me than just a, a quick yogurt. But sometimes there are meals that are more than the sum of their parts. For several years now, our family's made choices amongst the adults in the family to, to tone down our gift giving and to tone up our meal having. And so uh, traditionally at, at Christmas time, we've, um, we've chipped in together and gotten a, a ridiculously delicious and expensive prime rib with all of the fixings and amazing desserts. Why? Because it's ridiculously extravagant that Jesus would be born in the flesh and dwell among us on, on Christmas, and so we want that to be representative. We serve good wines and have deliciousness all over the place, and it's part of the celebration. And we typically have three generations present at a meal like that, from uh, the kids and grandkids and parents and grandparents, and we have friends and family and neighbors who partake. I look around the room. Some of you have been to an Easter brunch or to a Christmas dinner at our house. And these Christmas dinners are more than meals because they're motivated by a greater event, the birth of Jesus. And they come to life when we start to share stories with each other. There's the retelling of old stories, family sagas, and funny, embarrassing stories, depending on which side of the story you, you, you sit, right? Um, and th there's new stories, like what someone's done over the past year that you haven't seen in a long time, and just getting to hear an update on their life. And, and finally, there's usually expressions of longing. Like, if you listen closely, you can hear the vocalization of hopes for someone in the coming year, plans that they may have that are materializing. And maybe you've had some meals like that. Maybe it's been a holiday meal. Maybe it's been a Friendsgiving. That was my first foray. And just like, wow, this can be better than just a stuffy family meal. Like, wow, that was so fun. If you've ever been a part of a meal that's more than a meal, you know it's special. It's an experience that feels safe, yet intimate, enjoyable, and relaxed, yet sacred. It's a place where you, you know others and you are known deeply. And I think that those meals that are more than meals are a foretaste of how relationships are supposed to be. They're like little tastes of what our relationships will be like in the kingdom of heaven, both our relationships with other people and our relationships with God. This evening, we'll join Jesus for a meal, more than a meal, really. And the good news is that we are all invited. Would you stand as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 20. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. 
The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking an opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed and Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and said to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on this table. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. For the past couple of Sundays, we've been rooted in Luke chapter 23. We've been paying particular attention, attention to Jesus' atoning death on the cross and how that sacrifice in particular gives us hope of new life both for individuals and for all of creation, for social structures, for the actual world, the created world, all things. This Sunday, we're going to go back in time about 24 hours to the night before. To set the scene, it was near the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is at the time of Jesus' uh, narrative here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, which were originally two separate events, had been merged into basically one thing. So they're synonymous in the language. Jesus has already come into Jerusalem where frenzied crowds with fronds. Now we have our... Uh, our ferns there, our sword ferns, because that's, that's northwest fronds, but they had palm fronds, and they, they were uh, hailing him king, and they hoped that he would be the kind of revolutionary leader that would lead a revolt against Rome. Just a few days later, though, the tide would turn away from Jesus, and, and not only would many of these crowds turn on Jesus, but so would many of his closest friends, including Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. We know from the text that the religious leaders were already trying to find a way to condemn Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowds. They couldn't just grab Jesus out in the open temple. They were afraid of what the people might do. They had to find a way to take Jesus quietly, and Judas was their ticket. 
Being an insider, Judas knew the regular patterns of Jesus' movements, and in particular, he knew that in the evenings when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would go and pray at the Mount of Olives. Now, we don't know exactly why Judas betrayed Jesus, and we don't know exactly what it means that it, the text says that Satan entered into him. But one thing that the Bible constantly in the Old and New Testaments holds in tension is the volition or the will of a person and the Satan, the accuser, literally, that's what that means, the Satan, the accuser, and, and, and his influence upon us. They, somehow those things are in tension. Neither one negates the other. We know from earlier passages in scripture and from other gospel accounts that Judas was greedy, that he used to steal money that the disciples collected that was supposed to be for the poor. And, and so we know that Judas's heart was already corrupted, already twisted. Most likely, the Satan, the accuser, took advantage of this weakness in Judas and leveraged it for his own bidding. And there's a warning here, I think, to each of us about character development. The more we are predisposed towards sin, selfishness, greed, lust, gluttony, name your vice, just put it in there, the more opportunity the Satan has to tempt you and I to derail us from, from a life that's, that's truly life-giving to one that is um, really slavery to something else. But that's not what this sermon is about because I don't think that that's what this passage is about. This passage is setting up the reality that behind the schemes of human beings, there's a cosmic battle raging. Verses three through six reveal the, the movements of the evil one. But if there's any question of who is actually in control of the situation, verses seven through 23 tell us explicitly that Jesus knows what's up. He's been predicting his betrayal and death numerous times before this chapter. Then he sends his disciples to find a place to have the Passover meal together. He just happens to know exactly where they're going to find a guy who will meet them carrying water, who will take them to a house where another guy who owns the house will just happen to have a room ready for them. Pretty cool. Jesus has prearranged all of this. It's all going according to his plan, down to the exact words that the disciples will say to the owner of the house. It's no coincidence that all of this is taking place during the Passover season, because the Passover is the ritual festival and the meal that the people of God um, practice to relive the most excellent rescue of all time. The Passover was a participation in the defining moment of God's great deliverance in Israel's history. So when God decided that he wanted to bring the people out of, of slavery in Egypt, which is, takes place in Exodus 13 on forward, he does something interesting. The chapter before he actually delivers them, he gives them the Passover to practice. The Passover is the celebration of the event. Elsa, when's your birthday? It was recently, right? No, no. Yeah, December what? December 19th, okay. December 19th, what year? 2005. So you've had, you've had some birthdays. Do you think that your mom, Joe and Katie, do you think that they celebrated your birthday in 2004? Why not? Why didn't they have a cake for you and presents for you? Because you weren't there yet, right? Yeah. Um, do people, nobody celebrated Christmas before Jesus was born. 
Why, why didn't we do that? Well, because he wasn't born yet. The, the Mariners' opening day is coming up, right? Uh, are we going to have a parade in the street celebrating their World Series win this month? No, because they're never going to win the World Series, but that's beside the point. That's beside the point. We usually wait till something happens, and then we celebrate it. The Passover is the only holy day that God initiated before it actually happened. That's until this passage that we're focusing on tonight. Listen to some of the parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. When God decided he wanted to bring his people out of captivity from slavery in Egypt, he prepared them by giving them a meal, the Passover meal. When God decides he wants to bring people out of captivity from sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he gives them the Lord's Supper. Before Jesus is crucified, before he's in the grave three days, before he's resurrected from that grave. God gave the Israelites the Passover meal as a way of remembering his salvation. There's so many elements to the meal, but the staple pieces were the flatbread, the matzah, unleavened bread made without yeast because on the night of the exodus, the people had to flee quickly. No time for making the good stuff. No time for taking something that would spoil on the road. Take the matzah. The Passover lamb was central to the meal. The angel of death was sent uh, to to the homes of the Egyptians to kill the firstborns. But the Israelites who sacrificed a lamb and smeared the blood over the the doorpost, over the lintel of their home, they, they would be passed over from that curse. There were the bitter herbs, the marar, which were eaten to remind them of how the Egyptians made the lives of their forefathers bitter. And throughout this meal that was more than a meal, there were four cups of wine that would be consumed at at different parts in, in, in the meal, and each one had its own meaning. I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take. And the senior male of the house would play host to this meal, this drama, really, that unfolds. And in this case, Jesus was the leader, and he would be in charge of officiating the Passover meal. Now, the disciples might have thought things were a little bit off. Jesus was performing the Passover meal, the Seder, most likely a day early. Furthermore, there's no account of a lamb in the story. That's like the central part of the Passover. But then again, they'd been hanging around Jesus for a few years now, and they knew that he did things a little differently. Plus, the authorities were after him, so maybe he wanted to lay low. Maybe he didn't want them out in public sacrificing the lamb. Okay, fine. So Jesus would probably have started the Passover night with this meal with the traditional, why is tonight different than any other night? And then the youngest in the room, the youngest male, which in this case was probably the Apostle John, they would reply, on all other nights, we eat leavened bread or unleavened bread. Why on this night do we only eat unleavened bread? And then that same younger person would say, on all other nights, we need not dip our herbs even once. Why on this night do we dip twice? On all other nights, we eat sitting or reclining, whatever we want. Why on this night Must we all recline? Why must we all relax? Everything was going according to plan, just as it had since these guys were boys. But then things got weird. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
That's not how the Seder goes. That's not in the Passover Haggadah. It is about, the Passover is about God's deliverance of the people. But here, Jesus is making this new meal that's more than a meal about himself. Little pet peeve too. Notice that Jesus' words say, this is my body given for you. He never says it's broken for you. Why? Psalm 22 says none of his bones were broken. His bones were put out of joint, never broken. And in John's gospel, we know here explicitly that none of Jesus' bones were broken. So there you go. That's why I'll never say this is the body of Christ broken for you. It's given. Huzzah. Okay. But before we get any better, it gets weirder. Jesus then took the cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in the blood of the lamb. No, my blood. That's so gross and weird. The Passover was about God fulfilling his covenant with Abraham and the people of God. It was ratified. A covenant is a contract, a relational contract. And what ratified that original covenant was the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice. But now, Jesus is referencing a new covenant in his blood. This is astonishing. We're just kind of used to it because we say those words every week at communion. Well, this is weird. What was Jesus doing? Why was he changing the ritual? Now, of course, these guys couldn't understand, wouldn't understand until this beloved man that they were eating more than a meal with would hang from a cross. And the scriptures tell us that as Jesus gave up his spirit and death, the veil of the, the curtain separating the world from the holy of holies and God's presence, it was torn from the top to bottom, indicating, as we said last week, that God is the instigator. God is the one who tears this uh, barrier between us. God himself is making a way for us to be saved so we can go to heaven so that we can be in his presence, so that we can share in his life. It's about relationship. Covenant is always about relationship. It was after Jesus died and rose that the disciples would remember John the Baptist's words about him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ah, that's why there's no lamb in Jesus' version of the Passover Seder. He was representing the supper to show that he was the, the lamb of God. He is the last lamb that would ever need to be slain. And all this business about the bread. Here's the words from the actual Seder Haggadah. It says, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all those who are hungry come and eat with us. Let all those who are in need come and share our meal. This year we are here, next year we may be in the land of Israel, this year we are still slaves, next year we may all be free. That's what the bread represents. Now Jesus was making himself, his very body, the bread of affliction. He would suffer that we might be free. He said himself, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He is fulfilling that great longing, not only of Israel, but of humanity. You ever just feel 
like you're not winning at life. I'm not talking about the kind of winning, hashtag winning, when you, you know, have a great date or you buy a new car or the world's way of winning. Do you ever just feel like maybe you're, you're a waif going through the motions of life? Like there's gotta be more to it. This is, this is what Jesus is talking about. What he came to give us is the substantive life, the bread of life that never runs out, that continues to give life. That's that's very much part of salvation, not just this ticket of an afterlife someday after you die. Such good news. And then there's the blood of the lamb. Of course, the blood of the new covenant, just as God promised through Jeremiah the prophet. Listen to these words. I just want to read right from, from Jeremiah. This is chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, hundreds of years before Jesus was walking in this scene. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man, his neighbor, each of them, his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Jesus' blood shed for the sins of the world. All who come to trust in him, to be baptized into his death and resurrection, into his new community, that's what this is about. Now the strange thing about Jesus is that he was doing in his person the things that were only supposed to happen when God's kingdom came in fullness. So you see, the prophets pointed to a time when God would come and he would be with his people. By the way, Passover, Exodus, the big deal about the Exodus wasn't just that they, they were delivered from Egypt. It was the presence of God and the pillar of fire and smoke with them. And when Moses found out that God was ticked and he wasn't gonna go into the promised land with them, he said, I don't wanna go. I don't wanna go unless you're with me. That's what this is about. It's not just about God. Uh, every jam he gets us out of, we'll find a new jam to get in, won't we? Right? So it's not just about getting us out of jams or getting us into heaven or getting us into everlasting life. It's about being with us and us being with him. Okay, I gotta stop these side trails because I can't focus. So the prophets pointed to this time when all of these things would happen, uh, when, when justice would come, when evil will be toppled, when people would be healed, and all of this stuff. But, but what was happening is in Jesus's person, wherever he physically went, these things were happening on a micro scale. Wherever Jesus showed up, there was the kingdom. Jesus judged evil by casting out demons. Jesus healed the sick and restored the outsider. Jesus was God's presence on earth with people. Jesus was even resurrected from the dead as a foretaste of what the kingdom would be like. I'm still waiting for my turn. Are you still waiting? Yes, which brings us to the meal that is more than a meal. 
After Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday, the early Christians began to gather for worship on Sunday rather than on the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. They didn't have the day off on Sunday, most of them. There was no such thing as the weekend in the Roman Empire, the the musician or the actual having weekends, especially for the slave class. So they would gather for worship before work on Sundays. They would sing and they would pray, but the two main emphases of their worship on those days of worship was the reading and preaching of the word of God and the sacrament at the table. If the preaching was bad, at least they got the gospel at the table, amen? You get to hear every time they gathered that Christ died for them, that Christ rose, that he reigns, and that they are one in him. Very good news. They didn't oftentimes have time for a big meal, and so it was simple. Bread and wine, a meal more than a meal. Four images described what they did at this table. The first was the breaking of bread, simple. This wasn't necessarily talking about eating a big meal, as I said before, but sharing in the common life of Jesus and the church. The breaking of the loaf, the distributing it as one, making many one. The second term is the sharing or the koinonia, which we sometimes call fellowship or communion. Communion is a helpful term because it speaks to our unity across age and gender and race and culture and time. Our communion is a sharing of Jesus as the center of our lives together. It doesn't matter what our affinities are outside of this. We all have Christ in common. That's the great unifier among us. The third term is the thank you meal or the Eucharist that comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Basically the great thanksgiving. At the table we give thanks, we celebrate. And finally the fourth name for what we do at the table is the Lord's Supper. And we recognize that when we come to the table, Jesus is the great host. It's not up to the priest or the pastor or certain people. We're not putting out a spread and inviting Jesus to come join us. He is always the one who initiates the invitation. He is the one who takes, blesses, breaks, and gives, and we are the recipients. Okay, so what is actually happening when we partake in communion or the Lord's Supper? Like, what's going down? So many terms over the years that have been employed to try and describe this, and On one extreme, we have the Roman Catholic transubstantiation um, that is heavily influenced by medieval philosophy, whereas the physical is just an outward form of what is real, and the real is the spiritual. The belief is that somehow your senses are telling you that this is just bread and wine, but in truth, you are consuming the actual body and blood of Jesus sacrificed for you. The other extreme on the very opposite end of the spectrum is memorialism, which is heavily influenced by rationalist thinking. And it maintains that the elements at the table are simply bread and drink, and they're just there to jog our memory. To help us think upon the fact that Jesus died and rose. And both of these extremes, to me, seem to neglect the scriptural account, which is much more mysterious and hard to nail down. Sacrament literally means mystery. And I love what Dale Bruner has to say on this. I quote, 
This is my body and blood is not to be interpreted cannibalistically. Jesus also says things like, I'm the vine, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the gate. Jesus isn't a gate. Jesus gives his body sacramentally. The church has always believed, that is, he gives his body to us in the bread and wine in a real but not carnal way. How can this be, asked Dale Bruner. He answers his own question. Jesus is really good at miracles. I like that. The point for us in this passage is not to scientifically explain the bread and the wine. Now that we know the story, that's not even what this passage is about. What this is about is the promise of God's future kingdom somehow rushing backward into this table while at the same time, the once and for all event that Jesus performed on the cross rushes forward. At this, we stand at an intersection which looks forward to the coming kingdom. It looks backward to what Jesus did on the cross that helps us to be invited into that kingdom. Jesus hosts us at the table as the crucified and risen Lord. He's the host. His last supper might be more accurately called the first supper, a supper that is more than a meal. Look at it this way. If I need calories, I can get those by myself. In fact, um, according to the kids were out this afternoon, I realized I hadn't eaten anything besides, since breakfast and I was gonna come preach. I was like, I just scarfed down the sandwich. I didn't talk to anybody. There was no one around. I just ate. And that I'm still standing, because it worked. I got my calories, right? If Jesus merely wanted to forgive our sin and die in our place, he could have done that in lots of ways. He could have done that on the cross, and the resurrection life would be irrelevant. Salvation would be like eating a sandwich in private. It just gets the job done. But Jesus died and rose for much more than a transaction of our debt onto his account. He died and rose to send his spirit to make us new, to make us one people in Christ. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And it seems to me that when you love someone and you're trying to foster a relationship, a great place to start is by inviting them to dinner. And that's what he does at this table. Would you pray with me? Lord, I wanna thank you for your servant, Luke. And if I might be so bold, Luke, I thank you myself. <laughs> I trust that you're listening to this, that you're with the Lord. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving this word, for handing it down through meticulous scribal copies and people cherishing the word over the years so that it is in our hands, in our possession, in our heart language. And I thank you for the way that this word has expanded my view and hopefully our view of what it means to be yours, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a disciple. I am thankful 
that you did more than just got the job done. But that you love us and that you invite us into a vibrant, spirit-filled relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see these thin places, prayer, sacrament, a meal that's more than a meal, as being places where we really get to meet with you in a special way, where you are actually present with us. And may that feed us and encourage us and sustain us for the journey ahead. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.